Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. 1 Timothy 3, 14-16. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us in your word, that you have inspired this word, and that it is for our good, it is for our building up. Lord, we are needy. We have sins that afflict us because we are still in the flesh. And so, Father, we pray that your word would do its work, that it would be used to sanctify us. And in hearing it, Father, we pray that we would be doers of it to the praise and glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. And you may be seated. So let's review a little bit before we come to this passage. The Apostle Paul has written to Pastor Timothy, who was ordained by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Okay, Timothy is left back then in Ephesus at this point in order to bring order to the church and, um, and bring the gospel to the people of Ephesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul's letter begins by warning Timothy. You remember this, this is a while ago that we were on it, but um, it warns Timothy to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. He then states rather that our instruction, so he's painting a contrast between the, the false teaching and the true teaching, our instruction has a goal, love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Um, there were men who misunderstood the law of God and yet were teaching Paul uh, teaching about the way of salvation by faith and um, giving some personal details about his former manner of life, his former life of blasphemy, exclaims, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, he says, came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That's what the Apostle Paul says of himself. Then the Apostle Paul gives this command to Timothy. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now a thesis statement usually comes somewhere in the intro. Of, of a letter, of a book, of a, um, of a writing. And it signals the purpose of the writing, then points are made to undergird that point in subsequent paragraphs. 
It appears to me that verse 18 and 19 function like a thesis. Then the first point in support comes where our chapter 2 is, marked first of all. So, so that, that point, 18 and 19 of chapter 1, is the overarching theme of this book. An apostle is exhorting a pastor how to go about the work of ministry. Right? In witnessing to the grace of God, the grace of God in the world, in setting up churches for the work of the ministry, and in giving goals for Timothy, and through Timothy, all subsequent elders in their personal duties. Um, if the elders make shipwreck of their faith, the church is doomed. And so that's why he's giving himself to this, this focus. Chapter 2 then goes on to work out that theme. First, our exhortations to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Um, and specifically for the men in every place to pray, lifting holy hands without wrath or dissension. Then women are instructed to modesty. Modesty in clothing, modesty in mouth. Because of the order of creation, woman is not allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, it says in verse 12. Both of these applications have to do with a Christian's witness to the world regarding God's authority and his good order. They have application not simply within the church, but within God's world. Then from there, we move on to order specifically within the church, the specific offices of the church. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, describe the qualifications for the office of elder. And then verses 8 through 10 and 12 and 13 describe qualifications for the office of deacon. Verse 11 speaks to qualities that must distinguish the wives of deacons. And then we come to the verses today. So at the conclusion of the section dealing with offices in the church, the Apostle Paul then concludes saying, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write, and that's implied, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The Apostle Paul wants Timothy to know how to bring order to the church. And, and the specific words Paul uses for this order is, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And, and this is only, right, this is only in case Paul is delayed and can't bring that message himself. So he's giving, giving this to Timothy in case he doesn't show up himself. If he isn't delayed, he, he's going to teach the Ephesians themselves these lessons. But if delayed, Timothy is called to give attention to these things. He's writing them down for Pastor Timothy's use. And um, the you in this verse is singular. He wants Timothy to know what is appropriate conduct so that he, as the elder, the presbyter, can manage the household. Um, Paul is exhorting him. Now, of course, by extension, he's exhorting all of God's people, but uh, Paul is exhorting him. Now, there, there's a conduct, right? One of the things we can pull out of this passage is there's a conduct that is appropriate for the household of God, the church. 
It's conduct that is appropriate. He's been speaking of it. Don't teach strange doctrines. Teach what is right. Understand the law and its uses. Understand God's grace to sinners. Pray for authorities, men lifting holy hands without wrath. Women, be silent. Do not exercise authority over men. Elders, be this kind of man. Deacons, be this kind of man. So all of this conduct is conduct that's appropriate to the household of God. Fathers, have you insisted on a particular kind of conduct in your homes? This is essentially what Paul is doing here for Timothy. He's insisting on a particular kind of conduct for the household of God. Have you insisted on a particular kind of culture in your homes? Do you have both daily rules and happy traditions, right? And and things we don't do and things we most certainly do that give your home and your family a particular kind of culture. Um, Is there a a well-used kitchen or a dining room table demonstrating that the family um, eats together and talks together? Right? Um, Is the centerpiece of your home a gaming console? Right? Um, My wife and I have been watching British detective shows, um, Inspector Morse, late in the evenings, and Whenever they need information about somebody, the best place to go, even better than talking to their closest relatives and associates, is their home. They go to their home to find out what kind of person they are, right? There are books and pictures and cleanness and uncleanness. There are devices and computers and things that people delight in and sports paraphernalia and and. Um, there may be a welcoming feel or an unwelcoming feel, etc., etc. The household demonstrates something about you, right? Particularly about the head of that household. The best indicator, though, you know, is the behavior of that person's children. Um, everything may be put in place. You know, Harvard uh, diplomas may be on the wall. There may be. Um, thick books and tome after tome of Reformed theology on the shelves, but his children are unbearable. And you learn something about the head of that household. Conversely, there may be Cheerios scattered everywhere, um, comic books on the coffee table, and Clemson banners and diplomas. And, And yet his children may honor their mother and show respect to visitors, right? And so the members of the household and their conduct will have the biggest effect on the the character or the culture of that household. God's household, the church, is to reflect his fatherhood. God's household is to reflect his fatherhood, his authority, his presence, right? That he's present there. Um, And that is particularly reflected or ought to be reflected by his people's conduct. Uh, The church, of course, is not its library or its wall hangings or its building as much as, um, you know, rich Americans and Roman Catholics say it is. The church is the fellowship of believers. 
and their conduct, their fear and love of God, their care for one another, their pursuit of holiness, their love of the truth, right? Their forgiveness, their reconciliation with other people, their commitment to the church and her growth, right? That marks the culture of the church, and it reflects the head of the household. Um, This is no ordinary household, is it? The church is called here the household of God. The household of God. We are the church of the living God. This household, God's church, is also called the very, the, the very support, the pillar and support of the truth. Right. So you better believe that there is a conduct that's appropriate to her. And that those who refuse to live by the rules of the household will be cast from it as a rebellious child or wife or husband, really, who is corrupting a household, would be removed from it. But keep in mind that the command for Timothy and those who receive his instruction is geared toward their conduct, how they live. We get tired of hearing it, but it it has to be said among Reformed Christians who tend towards scholasticism and arguing about words, but the goal is to be doers of God's word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Unless this push, you know, toward conduct and doing be seen as some sort of legalism, Um, Let me say this, does the fact that I have household rules in my home determine whether my children have the name Dion? No. No, it's by their birth, right? It's by their birth that they receive the name Dion, and their conduct will determine whether they honor or dishonor that name, right? Will they honor or dishonor that name? So also the church of God were saved by grace, Born again by the Holy Spirit, that is where we receive our family name. It is then that we are called to live in a manner worthy of that household, that household of God. Will we honor the name of Christ or dishonor it? Never let doing be thought of as legalism. It is simply Christian living, I mean, Christians living as Christians in the household they've been placed in by God. Right? Pure legalism is extremely rare. Pure legalism is extremely rare, though the charge of legalism is, is always thrown about. Legalists tend to add some little measure to the word, you know, eating the right foods, and make the entire plan of salvation come down to that one little stupid thing. Um, that is legalism. And the one pushing for that has no knowledge of the grace of God. And the fear of God that comes from the forgiveness of sins. And so they misunderstand the magnitude of grace and the place of works in the Christian life. So Calvin, in a sermon on this passage, puts things very nicely. He says this, Let us remember this sentence and set it before our eyes, that God dwells in the midst of us and that we are his house. Now let us consider that God cannot dwell in a foul place. His house is not a pigsty. He must have a holy house and a temple. 
And how is that? Our beautifying must be spiritual. We must be clad with the graces of the Holy Spirit. This is the gold and silver. These are the precious stones that the prophet Isaiah speaks of when he describes the temple of God. Let us learn, therefore, seeing that God is so gracious to us as to have his word preached among us, that is, to this end and purpose, that he may be resident among us and we may be his temple. And for this cause, let us see that we clean ourselves from all our filthiness and renounce them so that we may be a fit place for God's holiness to dwell in. God's household is not a pigsty. Now, now that's helpful, right? It's helpful to be reminded that our personal holiness contributes to a pigsty if we bring it in. Right? It, contrib- it, it befouls the household of God, which is to reflect that, that the head of the household, who is the Father in heaven, who is perfect. Right? There should be a reflection of that by the grace of God, the work of the Spirit in our midst. Right? But so often what we contribute is not our holiness, but what we contribute is just our sin. Notice that the church is called three things in this passage. First, as I've been talking about the household of God, she's, she's also called the ecclesia of the living God, the church of the living God. What does scripture mean when it says, when it refers to God as the living God? Um, it's a phrase that's used frequently in the scriptures in the Old and the New Testaments. For example, you, you'll remember Psalm 42 As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And this in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Simply means this, that God is the only God. God is the only God. All others are dead, right? They're not living, they're dead. It also means that he is himself the source of life. Think of how scripture describes the deadness of idols. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold. They're the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. On the other hand, God speaks, God sees, God hears, God breathes, and he does that all the time, and he sees everything all the time, right? And those who deny it, those who deny that of God are not fit for his household. That denial would be an unbearable reproach for the father of the house, right? God doesn't see. God doesn't hear. Let me go on in sin is a is a is is a dishonoring of the head of the household. God the Father. Thirdly, he calls the church the pillar and support of the truth. What is the truth? What is the truth? Psalm 119 answers that question for us. The sum of your word is truth. Some of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Jesus, just before his death, 
for the church, prayed for the church, saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Okay, so the Apostle Paul is using architectural language here. The meaning of the first word, stulos, is clear. It's pillar or column. Um, It's the word that was used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament for the big pillars in Solomon's temple uh, named Jachin and Boaz. Right? The other word is, is only used in Scripture. It's um, edryoma. Its, uh, its meaning is less clear, but when combined with stulos, seems to point to another architectural element of a building. Other translations than the NASB um, who uses support are uh, foundation or ground or bulwark. Right? So I think it is best to say that the church is the pillar, that which holds up the roof, and the foundation, that which holds up the whole, of the truth. Right? So the, the church, um, without the pillar without the, and foundation, the whole building collapses. If the pillar malfunctions, the roof falls. If, you know, either way, the building is rendered useless if there isn't the pillar and the foundation. Truth similarly depends upon the church. Now, there's a, there's a Roman Catholic misunderstanding of this that mustn't be taught. The Word of God is not dependent upon the church, as they would say. Right? They say that it's the authority of the Word of God comes because the church has designated the Word as the authority. We say that Scripture says of itself that it is authoritative, that it is God-breathed, right? Its authority comes from its source, God. It comes from God. It's not authoritative because of the testimony of the church. Do you understand the difference there? The truth of the Word of God is not dependent upon the testimony of the church. The truth of the Word of God is established upon the testimony of the source, God himself, Well, then how can the statement be made that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth? In this sense, she is the place, the household of God, where the word of God is preached and applied to the consciences of all men. If the church ceased to exist, preaching would cease to exist. And there would be an end to the process described by the Apostle Paul elsewhere. You remember this from Romans. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then it says this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without what? A preacher. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I mean, think of it. God has established the church as the source of his truth. His household rules. 
His message of salvation, the gospel in this world, comes from, is, is pro- proclaimed from the church. The church is a house that has as the center of all of its work, of all of its activities, of all of its ministries, of all of its worship services, of everything it does, God's truth as entrusted to her in the written word. Right? We preach and hear and live and share the word of God. The church is the means to that in the world. God could have sent angels. He could speak directly from heaven. But what he did instead of those things was establish his church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. And people hate the, the church. And people hate the church. Children who grew up in the church hate the church. And it's the, the place that God has established as the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church does, can't make up things on her own and call it the truth. No, the word of God is truth. One source for all time, pure words like silver tried in a furnace, right? It's the word of God itself that gives the church her authority and not the other way around. So the church is the household of God, the ecclesia of the living God, the, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and, and still people treat her like trash. You know, sometimes that is because people have not cu- conducted themselves in, in a proper manner. They've, they've given a bad name to the head of the household. Other times she's treated like trash, though, because someone has no respect for the rules of the household. The, the aliveness. They have no respect for the aliveness of the living God, right? And they have no respect for the place of truth. They would rather have God on their own terms. Right? God from their television sets at home. Um, these are the people that are either done with organized religion. You know, and, and sometimes it's because they have been in wretched churches that they don't give a rip about God's word. But often it's because that church has done well to uphold the rules of the household. Right? And they'd rather not have that kind of accountability. They'd rather dwell in the tents of wickedness than stand on the threshold of the house of God. Because then at least they could pretend to to come up with the rules and pretend to be pleasing to God. But one thing that won't, you know, they won't be doing is conducting themselves in the church of God. Don't become like that. Don't become like that. Children who grew up in the church... Don't become like that. Don't be embittered toward the pillar and foundation of the church, the household of God, where God lives and has his dwelling. Though your experience may lead you in that direction, you may have experiences that push you in that direction. But, you know, will you live by this, this false description that you've built up in your mind rather than the testimony of God's word? God has said the church is his household, the pillar and foundation of the church. Do you echo that in your attitude? The gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Though 
though she's, she's rent asunder by schisms, right? But that is due to man's sin, not God's word or his wisdom in fashioning the church as he has in his word, right? Trust what God's word says and dismiss your feelings. Dismiss your feelings. They're fallible. God's word is not. Now, finally, and way too quickly, we look, we look at this last verse. The passage now turns to what, what is an early confession or a hymn or a poem or something along those lines. Um, the reason it appears to be a confession is by the way these grammatically parallel phrases are introduced. It says, by common confession. Right? This seems to be a, a commonly used something in the church. It appears um, that the early churches were, were singing, were reciting, were using this uh, portion. They confessed their creed or they sang this hymn. Um, this was its content. Um, as for the parallelism of the lines, it goes this way. Um, Wilson explains this as a commentary. Each of the six phrases begins with a verb, a verb which ends in the same sound, the. Each verb is aorist and passive. Each phrase ends with a noun in the dative case. And all but one of the um, use, use the preposition n to tie the verb to the noun. So there's like a, a strict structure in the way that this, these phrases go by. So clearly this structure is meant to make it uh, meant to make it repeatable, meant to make it memorizable, meant to make it simple and understandable. Even the grammar of the passage reflects that. So so what is its content? Well, first it's great is the mystery of godliness, it says. So it's answering the question of the mystery of godliness. Where does godliness come from. It comes from somewhere or something or someone outside of us, right? It begins in the birth of Jesus Christ in the womb of a woman. He who was revealed in the flesh, incarnation, was vindicated by the Spirit, resurrection, seen by angels means seen by angels, right? Proclaimed among the nations means preached, proclaimed among all the nations, believed on in the world, means that the message that was preached was received by the world, taken up in glory, received into heaven, his ascension. So you have like incarnation, resurrection, ministry, and ascension right here in this little, little creed. In other words, the Son of God, just think of it in time, resurrected or incarnated, resurrected, preached, proclaimed, believed on, then ascended and is seated to the right hand of God. This is, a, this is a very concise statement of the Christian faith. The world has its own answer for the mystery of godliness, right? The mystery of godliness. They would just say, well, it's, it's unknowable. It's distant. It's abstract. It's, it's cultish. It's, um, it's hidden. Christians, though, had an incarnated, resurrected, visible, reigning king. That's what Christians had. Um, Wilson says this, and I agree that this is the coronation march for a new emperor enthroned on high. That's what this is, a coronation march proclaiming that Jesus is king. And so that's to proclaim a clash between Jesus, the king, and 
the, the new emperor and the old emperor Caesar. Remember what, G, what the Jews said when Jesus was crucified? We have no king but Caesar. And so now what are Christians saying? The Christian church is proclaiming, no, we don't have Caesar. We have Jesus as the reigning king. He is resurrected. He has ascended up on high. So beyond the content of this, this poem or creed or song text or whatever it may be, it is, it's simply important to point out the use of common confession. There's orthodoxy and there's unorthodoxy, and such things as summaries of orthodoxy are helpful. Right? They're helpful to keep us accountable to truth, to accountable to Scripture. So we're a confessional church, and the presence of this gives us reason just to be confessional. Um, not even focusing on the content, but the presence of this. We're intentionally confessional for a reason. But do remember the content of this creed or this song. This is your song if you are a Christian. This is your song if you're a Christian. You have an incarnated, resurrected, reigning king. Um, Shall you put that king off for some lesser thing for some lesser power? Will you be in awe of the power of man or will you be in awe of the power of God in Christ Jesus? So find rest, dear brothers and sisters, in his household. Right? This passage is saying you have a household, you have a church, you have a kingdom. You have a household, you have a church, you have a kingdom. And as a Christian, you're in all those things. You're in his house, learning to honor him as your father. You have his church where you're you're being taught the truth and held accountable to, to the conduct of the household. And you live in his kingdom, which is eternal and will never end. And will be where you rest forever, a kingdom that's impenetrable by any evil or any unkindness or any enemy ever. It's glorious, right? Amen?